ready. Ready to take a ride. Grab your coffee and strap yourself in. If you listen, I can hear God's plan. Because the show is about to begin. You're listening. You're listening to the Omega Man Radio Network. Hello, Tim. Welcome back. Okay, are we are we back? Yeah, my computer just totally locked up. Oh, no worries. <laughs> you know what? Those window machines have been known to do that. And, well, mine's uh, a Mac, and I usually don't have these problems. Well, what's up with that? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Those Macs have been known to do that. Um, holy cow. Okay. Well, we're okay. Uh, we're back, and uh, why don't you kick us off in prayer? Very good. Excellent, excellent. Lord Jesus Christ, when you were crucified we were crucified with you when you were buried we were buried with you when you were raised we were raised with you when you ascended we ascended with you and when you sat down on the right hand of the father we sat down with you we occupy and we operate from a position seated in the heavenlies with all spiritual blessings. Lord Jesus, this is how we approach this time today from this position seated in the heavenlies that we are in a position of blessing, favor, authenticity, authorization, and permission to advance your kingdom. We dedicate this time to you, your kingdom, and your people in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I say amen to that. My friend, the mic is yours. Excellent, excellent. Well, for those of you out there that may or may not have heard me on Shannon's show before, my name is Tim Kyes, and my ministry is called God Save the King. And what God Save the King is, very simply, is it's telling the nativity story. But it's actually retelling the nativity story. Because what I've been doing, this is a project that has been ongoing now for over 35 years, is that I have endeavored to tell the nativity story the way it really would have happened from the Bible and from history and from astronomy. And this is because, and I'm not trying to ruin people's day here, but this is because the traditional nativity story that we are so used to hearing, we have turned it into this quaint little children's story and that is just not what it is now i'm not opposed to children's stories and i'm not opposed to the times and the places when we need to make bible stories accessible to children but what has happened here is that we have taken this amazing epic story and turned it into this quaint little story which is just not what's going on here and if you listen to any of my previous shows with Shannon, you hear a wealth of in-depth information about the historical background of what was going on, not just in Judea, but in the Middle East and in the Mediterranean, in what we would call the known world of that time, because the context here is just absolutely stunning. So what I want to focus on today is I want to tell you a story about some background that will help us understand the arrival of the wise men at the court of Herod the Great. Now, this is a part of the story that, ironically, it doesn't even really make it 
into the traditional story all that much. Usually when we hear the traditional story, what we hear is we hear about Joseph and Mary traveling from Nazareth to Bethlehem and that Mary was on the back of a donkey and that there was no room in the motel, which by the way, that's inaccurate. That's not what it says. It says there was no room in the guest room, not the motel, so that's very different, but we won't get into that today. But that, um, and that she's pregnant when she's riding the back of the donkey, that's not true either. Uh, or, I mean, she was pregnant, but not ready to pop at any second, and that's the way we tend to tell that story, is that the very night that they arrived in Bethlehem, she gave birth immediately, you know, and then the... Um, the shepherds, they get the angel that appears to them, and the shepherds run and find the baby in a stable, okay? And then, of course, the magi, the wise men, they show up a few minutes later. Well, this is all, unfortunately, horribly inaccurate, and we, in the traditional story, we have the wise men show up at the house or the stable where Jesus was born, and he's been laid in a manger, but we skip over the fact that they went to the court of Herod the Great first. And this is, frankly, in my opinion, this is Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2 is one of the most bizarre chapters in the entire Bible. Okay, now I used that word deliberately to get your attention. Because if you read simply the first three verses, and here's the first three verses, it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Now, I can literally talk about these three verses for days on end because there is so much packed into these three verses. But let me give you a couple of things that should really grab your attention. This is why I say this is one of the most bizarre chapters in the entire Bible. Number one, we are told it's in the days of Herod the king. Now, we know what happens later in the chapter, that Herod endeavors to murder all the male children in and around Jerusalem to prevent this baby, which is not a baby anymore. He's a young child. He's about 15 months old at this point in time, and that's why Herod has a margin of error of about two years, is to make sure he gets him, quote-unquote. Is we know Herod's going to try to try to murder him, and we know he escapes, that God speaks to Joseph, his adopted father, in a dream for them to get out of town, right? So we know about this, but this is part of it that we typically skip over, except for the star, which we only treat very kind of glibly. We put this star on the top of our Christmas tree or in the nativity plays, we put this big giant star up there. But this is really stunning. I mean, wise men from the East. So who are these guys? And we could spend hours and hours and hours talking about who these guys are. And we'll do that another time. But notice that they say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? In other words, this is a very thinly veiled threat. They march right into Herod's court and they say, where is the legitimate king? So with a nudge and a wink, they're saying, because we know you're not him. We know that you are a Roman appointee. You are not the true king of the Jews. Frankly, you're not the Davidic king 
of the Jews is really what they're implying here. And then they make this really amazing and, like I said, bizarre statement. We have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. His star, what the heck is that? Are you trying to tell me? And, and we know this is true, but I'm, I'm reacting passionately here for a reason. Are you trying to tell me that they traveled from their capital, Stesiphon, uh, in the Parthian Empire, about 600 miles? It would have taken them a month to make this journey. That they traveled all this way because they saw a star? in the night sky they saw some type of celestial event and they and that communicated to them and they traveled all this way to find this new king well apparently so and then verse 3 which is one of my ver- favorite verses in the entire bible and we blow right past it it says when herod the king heard this he was troubled and all jerusalem with him now that is stunning Oh my word, that is stunning. Herod was a very savvy political operator. Normally this kind of thing never, he wouldn't have flinched. But we are told he was troubled, and not just Herod was troubled, but all Jerusalem with him. What would cause such a thing? And I'm actually going to have to answer that question in another episode because I want to get into a particular component of the backstory here. And that backstory is the fact that you have actually had an ongoing relationship between the province of Babylon, which is now with a part of the Parthian Empire at this point in time. You have an ongoing relationship between the province of Babylon and Jerusalem in Judea. And to put this in perspective, you actually have to back up about a thousand years before this time, before the birth of Christ. You actually have to back up about a thousand years and get a running start in order to put this in perspective. So I'm going to spit out a lot of information really fast here, guys. So bear with me here as I set this up. But if you go back a thousand years, that's when you have the United Kingdom of Israel. And this is their first king, Saul, David, and Solomon. And they have a very strong United Kingdom. But then when Solomon dies, his son, Rehoboam, fails miserably, and the result is the kingdom divides. So now you've got the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Right. So then, and I'm like I said, I'm moving really quick, quickly here. Then, in the late eighth century BC, the Assyrian Empire comes in and conquers the Northern Kingdom. Then, in the late seventh century, the Babylonian Empire not only conquers Assyria but then conquers the Southern Kingdom of Judea. Now, the Babylonians, there's actually three separate sieges of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. And in the first one, they take about 10,000 captives. But this is actually really provocative because they take 10,000 of the best and the brightest Jews they can find. This is critical. They take nobility. They take royalty. They take the intelligentsia. They take the academics. That's who they take back to Babylon because one of the things they're going to do is they are going to train them to 
operate in the Babylonian system. But not only does that happen, but the Jews themselves, they when they get taken to Babylon, they immediately establish a Jewish infrastructure in Babylon. So about a dozen years later, when another siege of Jerusalem occurs, and the temple gets destroyed, and now they take an enormous portion of the Jewish population captive back to Babylon, guess what has already happened? There is already Jewish infrastructure in Babylon. There's already schools, there's already synagogues, there's already kosher butchers. All the essentials for maintaining a Jewish life are actually already exist in Babylon at that time. So this huge number of uh, Jews are taken captive back to Babylon and the the point that I'm driving at here is that there is now a well-established Jewish community in Babylon from this point forward, and they maintain regular communication with the Jews that are back in the Promised Land, back in Canaan. Now, there's very few of them back in the Promised Land at this time. It's not 100% in Babylon and zero in Judea. There's still some left in Judea, but they are few and far between. The predo- Ready for this? The predominant Jewish community on the planet is now in Babylon. Okay, let me say that again for emphasis. The predominant Jewish community on the planet now lives in Babylon because the temple has been destroyed. The temple has been destroyed, so that means that temporarily the home of Jewish culture and religion is Babylon. It's not Jerusalem, it's Babylon. Okay, so now moving forward, in the mid-6th century BC, the Persian Empire conquers the Babylonian Empire. So what does this mean? This means they inherit all of the Jewish captives. They're now part of the Persian Empire, but then something very interesting happens. Cyrus the Great gives permission for the Jews to quote-unquote return to the Promised Land, to go back to Jerusalem, to rebuild the city and to theoretically rebuild the temple. All right. Now, it's estimated by this point in time that there are about a million Jews living in the Babylonian region of what is now the Persian Empire. And when Cyrus the Great grants them permission to go home, only about 42,000 go back. So now look at those numbers. A million Jews in the Persian Empire but only roughly 40,000, 42,000 go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. That is a very, very, very small percentage. I mean, if you do the math really quick, uh, if it's a million, then 10% is 100,000. So that means 1% is 10,000. So this is about 4%. This is a teeny little subsection of the Babylonian Jews that go back to Jerusalem. Okay, but now again, once again, I'm a lot of information moving really, really fast here. You fast forward to about the mid, the mid to late 4th century BC. Now the Greek Empire conquers the Persian Empire. 
and then when Alexander the Great dies, he div- his empire gets divided up amongst his five strongest generals. One of them gets defeated immediately, so in effect, it's really only his four strongest generals that divide up his kingdom. And the one that really truly matters for us today is his general named Seleucus, because Seleucus inherits um, all of the east. He inherits... Uh, Judea and Syria and Mesopotamia, Babylon, and it even goes as far east as the Indus River in India. So it's this huge, enormous chunk of land is inherited by the general Seleucus, and then his descendants become the Greek dynasty that runs this excuse me this part of the world. Frankly, until two things happen, and this is what's important, this is why I'm bringing this up. Number one, this is so such a huge area of land that a couple of different things start to happen right away. That, number one, the Seleucid Empire begins to weaken immediately because they just can't control this enormous portion of land because the, the way they want to control it is because they want to make it all Greek. They want to have a uniform Greek culture in this entire area, and there's just not enough true-born Greeks migrating from Greece to come here and run it to make it this uniform culture. So what they need to do is they need to persuade the locals to adopt Jewish culture and then run it for them, and that doesn't really go so well. So, for example, it only—I it, mean—it lasts about a hundred years before it starts to tr- start to break apart. But after about a hundred years, in the far eastern portion of Seleucid's empire, this there's a province called Parthia, and Parthia breaks away and declares their independence. And what's going to happen is is over the next 250 years, they are going to gradually move west. They're in the far east but of part of Seleucid's empire, but now they are going to start moving west. And this is the Parthians, and this is the emergence of the Parthian empire. And then about 100 years after that, in the middle of the 2nd century BC, oh, this little tiny kingdom called Judea, breaks away and declares its independence. So that is very provocative. And then in the background, you don't really see it yet, but it's going on in the background, is you've got this upstart empire off to the west called Rome. And Rome is moving east. Now, Rome and Parthia won't make contact until the Seleucid Empire completely disintegrates. The Seleucid Empire is going to act as a buffer between Rome and Parthia, but they're there. That's the point. Rome is there. They're out to the west, and they are moving to the east. Parthia is in the east, and they're moving to the west, and then Judea is right smack in the middle, and this tiny little fledgling kingdom has broken away and declared its independence. But let's go back to the Jewish community in Babylon for a second, because this was a thriving community. As I mentioned, there's a million Jews in the in the Babylon region 
in Mesopotamia and they've and they've got life and they've got culture and they've got religion and one of the things they did ready for this one of the things they did is they appointed a religious head of their community and he was called the Resh Galusa in Aramaic or which what would be Rosh Galut in Hebrew which means the head of the diaspora or in other words the diaspora in other words the head of the exiles he's he is the president of the exiles leading or pardon me living in exile in Babylon so this tells you something about what's going on there that they like I said that see Babylon is now the Jewish cultural center on the planet it's not Jerusalem it's not Jerusalem for a couple hundred years here so from from the cat uh, you know, from the captivity by the Babylonians through the Persians and then through the Greeks, the thriving head of Judaism in the world is in Babylon. And there is a massive contrast between the Jews in Babylon and the Jews back in Judea. Because number one, there's very few of them. And then even once the, even once the Jews are allowed to go back, um, released by Cyrus the Great, and you have the era of Ezra and Nehemiah rebuilding the temple and things like that. It's it's a very small population. Initially, like I said, only about 42,000 that go back and start to rebuild. And they, the Jews that are in Jerusalem and Judea, they are extraordinarily oppressed by their Seleucid overlords. Ironically, very interesting contrast here that the Jews in Babylon, they have a large degree of freedom, but the Jews that are in Jerusalem, they don't. They have a little bit. They're allowed to rebuild the temple. They're allowed to operate their religion. But boy, they are put under the thumb of the Seleucids. And by the time we get to the middle of the second century BC, that is when you know Judea declares its independence from the Seleucids. And there's a rebellion. There's a straight-up rebellion. And we know about this. This is called you know, the Maccabean Revolt. And it's led by uh, Judah Maccabee and his father and his brothers to throw off Greek domination from Jerusalem and Judea. And I'll get back to that in a second. But I do want to talk about the Jews in Babylon for just a little bit more for one second here, which on other episodes, I've, I'm a huge big fan of the clay of uh, archaeology and the clay tablets that have been recovered from the deserts of Mesopotamia. We literally have tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands, of clay tablets that have been retrieved from the deserts of Mesopotamia. And in and amongst these tens of thousands of clay tablets, most of them are about the the local culture, meaning it's a, it's about the the Babylonians and it's about the Persians and it's about the Parthians and that's what the majority of these tablets are about. Frankly, the majority of the tablets. Little side note here is the vast majority of the tablets are the daily intelligence briefing given by the wise men, in other words, the magi, to the king of the realm. Every day they would give a daily intelligence briefing to the king, and that's what the majority of these tablets are.
is this daily intelligence briefing. But included within these tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of clay tablets that we have collected from ancient Mesopotamia, there is a collection of about 200 clay tablets that are called the Al-Yahuda tablets. Now, Al-Yahuda, that means the Judean tablets, the Jewish tablets. And these are all, these tablets are all about the Jewish community in Babylon. So we actually know quite a bit about the Jewish community in Babylon because we have these tablets. And we can date these tablets all the way back to about 15 years after the temple was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. So we have a written record of what this is like. So this is just really stunning that we do have this information about the Jewish community in Babylon and the fact that, here I go again, I'm repeating myself for emphasis, the fact that the Jewish population in Babylon, the Jewish community in Babylon, that was the head of Judaism on the planet at this time. Yes, there were captives that returned to the promised land, returned to Canaan to rebuild, and they did, and they did rebuild, and they reinstated, they reinstated a high priest, you know, to be kind of the de facto ruler of the Jews, but this was under the thumb of the Greeks. You'll notice that they certainly didn't allow the Jews, the Greeks certainly did not allow the Jews to declare anybody king. Oh, no, 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 you can't have that. You know, we'll allow your, your religion as long as you pay your tribute and you do what we say. We'll allow you to have the head of your religion, but oh, no, we're not going to let you have a a, you know, a head of state. No, we're not going to allow you to have civil leadership. So what's funny there is that the high priest, you know, kind of became the de facto civil ruler as well, and that plays a role in our story here because, like I've said, the Jews in Canaan were horribly mistreated by the Seleucids, uh, and after you know, a hundred, a hundred and fifty years. Of this mistreatment, the Jews had just had a belly full, and most of uh, you know most Christians are at least a little bit aware of the Seleucid ruler whose name was Antiochus the uh, Fourth, Antiochus Epiphanes, and he, you know, erected a statue of himself and or a statue of Jews. We're not really sure exactly which it was statue of Zeus or a statue of himself or a statue of himself with Zeus's face or statue of Zeus with his face on it in the temple in the temple in Jerusalem and forced the Jews you know to offer pigs as sacrifice which is just so offensive it's it's hard to find words to describe how offensive that is so now you get the Maccabean revolt against the Seleucid overlords, and this is a man, a priest named Matthias, and he kills a Greek official, and he and his sons uh, wipe out the Greek garrison in the town called Modin, and then they run into the hills, and you have this rebellion that starts, and this is known as the Maccabean Revolt, and Judah becomes the first defa- the Matthias Mattathias's son Judah Maccabee. He becomes the first kind of de facto ruler 
after this rebellion. And he's really just a rebel leader. Uh, he's not really high priest, although he probably called himself high priest uh, just because, you know, what else are you going to do? But he was really primarily a rebel leader. But he ruled until about 161, 160 BC. And then um, I'm pretty sure it's one of his brothers, Jonathan, uh, took over. He was high priest from about 160 to about 142. Then another brother took over. His name was Simon. Another of the five brothers, he took over and was high priest from about 142 to about 135, 134. But then we get to the Maccabean ruler that I really want to talk about here. And this is another point in the story. This is why I want to make this connection and why I want to tell the story. Is He is now the fourth of the Maccabean rulers, and his name is John Hyrcanus or Hyrcanus I, John Hyrcanus or Hyrcanus I. Now, he is a son of Simon Thassi, okay, the ruler before him. So he takes over his father's position, and he does call himself high priest. The Although Judah Maccabee may or may not have called himself high priest, the next ruler after him, Jonathan, uh, does call himself high priest, Simon calls himself high priest, and now John Hyrcanus calls himself high priest, but he is also assuming this role of civil leadership, that the high priest is no longer just a religious leader, he is also a civil leader at this time. And John Hyrcanus is a really interesting individual because the initial portion of his reign is an absolute disaster. <laughs> Just an, nothing goes right for him. And part of this is because the Seleucids, they're not giving up so easily. Okay, The Jews have thrown off Seleucid, uh, you know, hegemony, you know, their rulership over the Jews. They've declared their independence. They have fought against the Greeks and they've and they have beaten them back. And they've now had, you know, three rulers in a row who have done a pretty good job of maintaining their independence. But John Hyrcanus does not do a very good job of that because the Seleucids, they're not finished. They march down from the north. Now, this is a, a Seleucid ruler whose name is Antiochus VII. Okay, so Antiochus VII, he drops down from the north and he besieges Jerusalem in 134 B.C., and John Hyrcanus is forced to negotiate with them. He's he's going to capture Jerusalem and take Jerusalem and destroy it again. So John Hyrcanus is forced to negotiate with him. But this is really interesting. What goes on here? This is really interesting because this is the demands. These are the demands that Antiochus the seventh drops on the Jews. He he says number one, you got to lay down your arms. Number two, you got to pay tribute again, right? Number three, you've got to allow a Greek garrison in Jerusalem. 
So those are his demands. But as part of his demands, this is really interesting, during the siege of Jerusalem, he allows a seven-day truce for the Jews to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, and he even sends them animals for sacrifice. So this is very unlike his namesake, Antiochus IV, who did the exact opposite, who marched into the temple, who demanded that the Jews sacrifice pigs and all this stuff. He's playing a very, very different game, and he's appealing to them. And so what happens here is that John Hyrcanus comes back and he says, okay, here's what, here's what we'll do. We'll lay down our arms, we'll pay tribute, but we won't allow a Seleucid garrison. But here is what we will do in return. Our army will fight for you. So even though they couldn't have a they refused to allow a Seleucid garrison in Jerusalem, John Hyrcanus voluntarily said that the Jewish army will now fight for the Seleucid army. And this is really interesting because, as I mentioned earlier, you've got the Parthian Empire is now encroaching on the Seleucid Empire from the east. They have de- they declared independence a hundred years earlier, and they are now encroaching. They're moving westward, and they are encroaching from the east. So now, when Antiochus the Seventh makes this treaty with John Hyrcanus, and John Hyrcanus says, "Yet yeah, you can't put a Greek garrison in Jerusalem, but we'll agree to fight for you." Well, guess who they're going to fight? They're going to go fight against the Parthians, which is just stunning and amazing. So what happens is there is actually this pretty significant battle at the Lycus River where the the allied forces, ready, the allied forces of Antiochus VII and John Hyrcanus I defeat the Parthian general Indates at the Battle of the Lycus River. Okay, now that's the Greek name for the river. The uh, Parthian name for the river would have been the Great Zab, Z-A-B, the Great Zab River. But they defeat the Parthians. They defeat the Parthians. So now, once this is another piece of the puzzle of this ongoing dynamic between Jews in Babylon, the encroaching of Parthian Empire, the dying Seleucid Empire, and then the Jews in Jerusalem and Judea, who are normally really put under the thumb of these Greeks. And it's just this really wild dynamic that is going on. But then in a really strange turn of events, guess what happens? Antiochus VII gets killed about a year later. So all of a sudden, the Jews are independent again, and John Hyrcanus, his reign completely flips around. Like I said, the early part of his reign was a complete disaster. They get invaded by the Seleucids again. He is forced to negotiate a treaty with them. They are forced to fight with the Seleucids against the Parthians, and then... Um, like I said, Antiochus VII dies, so everything flips, and John Hyrcanus becomes this very bizarre kind of hero to the Jews. He, now, he does things that are unprecedented, and that's what makes him this really unique kind of hero, because what he does is because the, because Antiochus VII dies and the Seleucids are now weakened, he engages in significant conquest and expansion 
of the kingdom of Judea. He um, he invades Samaria. See, because the kingdom of Judea at this point in time is tiny, 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 tiny. It's only about 25 miles in diameter around Jerusalem. That's it. It is tiny. It is dinky. So what he does, though, is he engages in conquest. He goes after Samaria. He conquers Samaria, and he does that. He crosses the Jordan and conquers part of Transjordan. And then he also invades to the south. Now, this is where, again, this is where it gets really interesting, because when he invades to the south, he invades a region that is known as Idumea. Now, Idumea, the the word Idumea is the Latinized form of the word Edom, okay? And then Edom is the land inherited by Isaac's son and Jacob's twin brother, Esau. So if you go back and, and you remember your Old Testament stories, you know, you have Isaac uh, had twin sons, Jacob and Esau, and then you've got this whole incident where, you know, Esau comes in from from hunting, and he's he's just exhausted, and he he's hungry, and he wants food, and Jacob tricks him into selling him his birthright. So it's this really interesting story here where, you know, on one hand, Jacob tricks him, but on the other hand, Esau plays along. We're told later on that Esau despised his birthright. So later in scripture we read where God talks about Jacob and Esau and he said, Jacob have I loved but Esau have I hated. So the the descendants of Esau are the Edomites and the Edomites live in this region and now that region has a Latinized name called Idumea. And John Hyrcanus invades Idumea and conquers it, and ready for this, he demands that the Idumeans convert to Judaism. They had been practicing other religions. They had not even remotely been following the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob until this time. But now they are forced. It's forced conversion, and they have to Uh, follow the Jewish religion, and they have to follow the Jewish law. And the trade-off here is that John Hyrcanus says, we will not confiscate your property and your wealth if you will adopt our religion. That's the key. We We will not confiscate your wealth. Because there are, I mean, even though these are, you know, tribes, for lack of a better word, and they are nomadic to a certain degree, they, nonetheless, the Idumeans do have an established culture. They've got cities, they've got predominant families and nobility and royalty of their own. So so now John Hyrcanus is telling them, he's telling their nobility, we will not confiscate your wealth if you will adopt our religion and, frankly, and serve us. So once again, now I'm going to throw out a lot of names and dates here, so try to follow along. So John Hyrcanus, he reigned from about 134 to about 104 B.C. And it's during this time that he forces the conversion of the Idumeans or the descendants 
uh, you know, the Edomites and the descendants of Esau, he forces them to convert, right? Now, when he dies, his son uh, becomes king for just about one year, and his son's name is Aristobulus I, but he's in very poor health, so he's only going to last about a year before he dies. But uh, during roughly during this time, actually it's during the reign of Hyrcanus the first, there's a there's an Idumean born whose name we're not precisely sure what his name is, uh, because there's a couple of different records and we're not sure which records are the most trustworthy. So I, out of convenience, I'm going to use the name Antipater. But Antipater the first was born in roughly 140 BC. Roughly 140 BC, so that was actually before John Hyrcanus came to power. But obviously, he's growing up, all right, and he is from a prominent Idumean family. And what happens is, is he becomes the governor of Idumea somewhere in this time. Antipater the first becomes the governor of Idumea. So then, like I said, John Hyrcanus dies, then his son Aristobulus becomes high priest. But the, the reason I bring up Aristobulus is because Aristobulus was the first of the Maccabean slash Hasmonean rulers to actually call himself king. Up until this time, they've only called themselves high priest. Now he calls himself king. and But then, like I said, he only ruled about one year and he died because he was in very poor health. So the uh, man that takes over for him is a man named Alexander Janaeus, and he decl- he calls himself king as well. Now, Alexander Janaeus, he rules from about 103 until about 76 BC, so he rules for about 27 years, and Antipater I would have been the governor of Judea, so they would have had very significant, or pardon me, of Idumea. Antipater I is the governor of Idumea, so there would have been very significant contact between them to maintain this relationship between Judea and Idumea. And then uh, Alexander Janaeus had a couple of sons that are going to become extremely prominent here in just a minute. So his oldest son, his name is Hyrcanus. So he's named after Alexander's father, who was John Hyrcanus, or we call him Hyrcanus I. And now Alexander's oldest son is Hyrcanus II. And then he has another son whose name is He's who's he's going to name Aristobulus the second again after his father. So he names his first son after his grandfather. He names his second son after his father, and then he dies in about seventy six BC. And ready for this, he declares his wife the civil ruler. His wife becomes queen of Judea. This is one of very few times this has ever happened in the history of Israel. Israel has a queen for about nine years, from 76 BC to about 67 BC. Alexandra Salome is the queen of Israel, and she appoints her older son, her eldest son, Hyrcanus II, she appoints him to be high priest, see, because she can't be.
be high priest. There's no way the Jews ever would have tolerated that. It's one thing to make her a civil ruler. It's something entirely different to make her the religious ruler. So she holds on to civil rulership while appointing her eldest son, Hyrcanus II, at high priest. And when this happens, Hyrcanus is about 27 years old, so he's actually old enough to inherit everything, but she hangs on to this civil authority until she dies, right? And then, of course, when she dies, Hyrcanus does become the civil ruler. But the point of all this is that behind the scenes, you've got Antipater I. Um, actually, he's Antipater the. I'm sorry, I, I misspoke here. Antipater I would have been governor of Idumea uh, during the reign of Hyrcanus, and then a little bit of Alexander Janaeus, but then it's actually his son, Antipater II, that takes over as governor of Idumea, and he would have been governor of Idumea during the reign of Alexander Janaeus and Alexander Salome, and therefore he would have been very close with Hyrcanus II very, very close with Hyrcanus II. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because during this time, Alexander, uh, pardon me, Antipater II, now he gets married, he's from, he's from this very prominent Idumean family, very prominent, very rich Idumean family, where Antipater I had been the governor, now Antipater II is the governor of Idumea, and they are cooperating very, very, very closely with the rulers of Judea. This is really significant to help us get an understanding of who these people are and what this looks like. But, of course, he gets married, he has an arranged marriage, and the arranged marriage is to a Nabataean princess named Cypros. Okay, now the Nabataeans are kind of like the de facto Arabs is kind of the way to put it, right? Because Idumea is immediately to the south of Judea, and then Nabataea is even further south. So it's an arranged marriage. These are powerful families. These are noble fam families, if not straight-up royal families. And there's an arranged marriage between Antipater and Cypros of Nabataea. And, of course, they start having children. And there, there's going to be a Antipater's desire here is that he wants to create a dynasty. He wants to create a dynasty. So um, Antipater II and Cypros, they have a total of five children. I'm going to tell you the names of these five children. I know this is a lot of names and a lot of dates, and it's you know this is a lot of information, but bear with me here. So their oldest son is born in about 73 BC, and his name is Faisal. Now I'm going to skip the second son for a second. The second son was born in about 71 BC. The third son, his name is Joseph, and he's born in about 68 BC. The fourth son, his name is Pheroras, and he's born in about 65 BC. And then the fifth child is their only daughter, and her name is Salome, and Salome was born in about 62 BC. But I mentioned a minute ago that Antipater I, who was born back just prior to the reign of John Hyrcanus, I'm calling him Antipater I because the records are not precisely clear on what his name was, and we're not sure which records to actually trust. But if the alternate record 
is correct, there's the possibility that Antipater I, that his name was actually Herod Antipatus I. So this is the beginning of the Herodian dynasty and the man that we know as Herod the Great. So Antipater I may have been Herod Antipatus I. And then his son Antipater II actually may have been Herod Antipas II. But we know him through history predominantly by the name Antipater, so I'm going to stick with that. But either way, Antipater II has five children, Faisal, Joseph, Pheroras, Salome, and then his second son, he, we know this for sure, he names him Herod. And this is Herod the Great, who was born in about 71 BC. And the point of all this is now you've got Antipater II, his oldest son Faisal, his second son, Herod, and the Jewish high priest, Hyrcanus. Those four men set the stage for everything that is going to happen for the next 65 years. They set the stage for everything. And now I need to reconnect it to what I talked about earlier, because once more, and bear with me here, guys, I know this is just a ton of information and a lot of names and a lot of dates, and it's hard to keep it straight, but that's why we have podcasts and why it's recorded is because now you can you can go back to the archives and you can re-listen to this, is because these four men set the stage for everything that's going to happen in the next 65 years. Well, about 25 years after this point in time, when Herod is roughly, actually I take that back, he's about 30 years old at this point. In 40 BC, the Parthians invade and overrun Judea. In 40 BC, the Parthians invade and overrun Judea. Herod is about 30 years old. Now, what happened? Antipater II is, is dead at this point. He was actually poisoned, assassinated. He's dead. Faisal and Herod and Hyrcanus are now in charge. Because of the Parthian invasion, Faisal and Hyrcanus, they actually go to negotiate with the Parthians, and Herod remains in the background in case everything goes sideways, which it does. Okay, So Faisal and Hyrcanus go to negotiate with the Parthians. Faisal is either murdered or commits suicide. We're not exactly sure which, but he gets killed. And then Hyrcanus gets disfigured. His ears get cut off. And the reason for this is because then that way he can never be high priest again. But he's not, he's not killed initially. He is actually taken captive back to, guess where? Babylon. And back in Babylon, the Jews, because he was the high priest in Jerusalem, now the Jews in Babylon receive him and celebrate him. And what I can't tell, I haven't been able to figure this out yet, is whether he was actually made Rosh Galut back in Babylon or not, because the Rosh Galut would have been the head of the Jewish religion in Babylon. 
And I don't think he was, and I think that was probably because he was disfigured. But the point being is that there was a very dramatic attempt to try to create an additional high priesthood for him in Babylon, despite the fact that there has now been a thriving community, Jewish community in Babylon now, at this point for, my word, 350 years at this point. I mean, it's it's a thriving Jewish community, and they've got their own leadership in the province of Babylon in the Parthian Empire, right? So Hyrcanus gets taken back there, and it's unclear. He's definitely celebrated. There's no question about that, but it's not exactly clear what exactly comes of him. But Herod, like I said, uh, Faisal gets killed. Hyrcanus gets disfigured. He gets taken captive back to Babylon. Herod runs away, but strategically. He runs away. The first thing he does is he goes to the Nabataeans because his mother is Nabataean. And he's trying to get uh, aid. He's trying to get military aid to repel the Parthians. But the Nabataeans, because they fear the Parthians and are maybe even allied with the Parthians, they refuse. So Herod runs to uh, Alexandria in Egypt because he's actually... And this is a whole nother part of the backstory. He's actually really good friends with the Roman general Marcus Antonius, the guy that we know from Shakespeare as Mark Antony. But Mark Antony isn't there, so Cleopatra puts him on a ship for Rome. He lands in Rome. He appeals to Mark Antony. Mark Antony introduces him to Caesar Octavian, Octavian Caesar. They take him to the Roman Senate, and the Roman Senate appoints him king of Judea and gives him a Roman army to go back and and retake Judea from the Parthians, which he does. It takes him three years. It takes him three years to reconquer Judea because the Romans were, frankly, they were easily bribed <laughs> by the Parthians, so they didn't always fight as well as Herod needed them to. So it took him three years to finally get it all in order and repel the Parthians from Judea and assume the throne that the Romans granted him. I mean, the Romans really didn't have it to give. They said, you can be king of Judea if you can go take it back, is really what it boils down to. But all of this now finally brings me to the punchline of this whole thing, because we started with the arrival of the Magi at the court of Herod the Great. Now, this is 40 years later, 35 years later, right? Herod returns to Judea, and he retakes Judea from the Parthians, and he becomes the Roman-appointed king of the Jews. But he is an Idumean, he is a convert to the Jewish religion, and he assumes civil authority. But like so many before him, he's smart enough to know that he can't be high priest. He can't do that. He cannot be the religious authority. But what does he do? He needs to appoint a high priest. So what he does is he appeals to Babylon. He appeals to Babylon and he brings a prominent Jewish priest from Babylon to Jerusalem to be the high priest in Jerusalem. He brings a prominent 
Babylonian Jew from Babylon, from the Jewish community in Babylon, and brings him, and his name is Ananel, and Ananel, he brings him to Jerusalem and appoints him high priest. Now, make no mistake, he didn't do this because he was looking for the most pious and religious Jewish high priest he could find. He was doing this because he wanted to put this man under his thumb, because from this point forward, Herod is going to appoint the high priest. So this is clearly a political maneuver. <laughs> Pardon me. <clears throat> but clearly what's going on here is that you do have you do have an active dynamic relationship between Jerusalem and Babylon. So when the so this adds just this tremendous color to the story that when the Parthian Magi show up, they show up and they say, where is he who is born king of the Jews? So here it is. What a bizarre contrast that you have an Idumean as the civil ruler of Judea. You've got a Babylonian Jew chosen for religious, pardon me, for political, not religious, for political, not religious reasons to be the high priest. And and he's actually no longer high priest by the time um, the Magi arrive, but Herod appoints a different high priest, again, for political reasons. So you've got this run of political high priests. So you've got an Idumean on the throne. You've got Jews, legitimate ethnic Jews, but appointed for political reasons as high priest. But then it's the Gentiles, it's the Parthians that show up and say, where is the legitimate king of the Jews? I mean, what an extraordinary story that the the beginning of this whole story of the gospel of Christ, where we know what happens. He's not accepted by his own. Only a very limited number of Jews believed in Jesus as their Messiah when during his first advent. But very shortly after he is born, Gentiles show up to acknowledge the new king of the Jews. And that is why now for 35 years I have been researching and calling this retelling of the nativity story in its proper biblical and historical context God save the king because wow oh my god wow it's the gentiles that show up and say where is he who is born king of the Jews. Praise the Lord, Brother Tim. Powerful teaching tonight. What shall we call this for the archive? Well, this one, ready for this? Yes, sir. Um, Actually, no, let's not call it that. Let's just call this call this one uh, the Jews of Babylon okay the Jews of Babylon it is Tim what is your website how do people find you in your excuse me in your ministry 
very simply, my website is www.godsavetheking.org, www.godsavetheking.org. So that's where you can find my website. I also have a YouTube channel under the same name with uh, dozens of videos, so you can learn all kinds of stuff about the story, and you can contact me at contact.godsavetheking at gmail.com. Fantastic. My friend, great word today. We love and appreciate you. Look at your schedule. Get me a date for July. Yes, sir. Sound good? Yes, sir. You did a good job. We'll see you soon. Thank you, Tim. Excellent. Thank you, Shannon. God bless. Folks, stand by.